Good morning and welcome to Black Book Talk on KBOO Portland. Today we're rebroadcasting part two of our interview with local activist Richard Brown, who discusses his memoir, This Is Not For You, an activist journey of resistance and resilience. We hope that you will enjoy this post-Christmas gift. Good morning. Welcome to the June edition of Black Book Talk on KBOO. This is part two of an interview with author Richard Brown on his book, This Is Not For You, an activist journey of resistance and resilience. This is a very, very special interview. In all of our broadcasts, we've never had two consecutive interviews and two consecutive months about the same book. So this is history. Welcome. How are you doing today, Brother Brown? I'm doing real good. And if you don't want it to be three, you're going to have to keep me under control. Here. <laughs> <laughs> We're joined by Emma Jackson Ford, bookwoman. Hello. Patricia Hill, Welch Librarian Emeritus. Well, one of the things I was wondering about after our last interview was, are there other things that you did as an activist? I know you've attended a lot of meetings. Have you gone to other cities for marches? Have you done other things? Well, I was in Detroit for a while and I went to the Poor People's March in Detroit um, back in the 70s, late 60s. And throughout my military, you know, I'd be involved in things that were going on in the cities I was in. Since I've been here, I haven't necessarily gone back for uh, demonstrations, but gone back to see how folks were dealing with certain issues. For instance, I went to um, Massachusetts, Boston, to figure out how they were dealing with their gang issues in, in Boston. I went to Nevada to see how they were dealing with some of their uh, drug crime drug house problems. You know, so I, you know, I've taken the opportunity when I've been somewhere to um, look in on what the issues were and how they were dealing with them. You know, I'm really interested in this whole process, the whole publishing process. Mm-hmm. So we, we did talk about that as much as we might have last time. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's probably where my questions will be. And I hope that before this interview is over that you will grace us with another reading from the book. But what I am curious about is, okay, you worked with a, a co-writer. And I'm right. always wondering, how does that work? Do you sit and, and dictate to them and they just write down what you say and edit it? Or how is that process? How well, was it, was a, it was a new process for me. And did we talk about how I met Brian? Well, and let, let, me, let me just briefly go through that. For years, you know, I've been wanting to, to do this. And uh, I just wanted a checklist. And I talked to people about it about and expecting somebody to say, oh, well, I'll help you with that. Or, you know, because I didn't know where to start. You know, I know what a military checklist looks like, but that's not what, what I wanted. So um, I was talking to some folks and they contacted Brian. Brian called me and we met for lunch and the process started there. We met for eight or nine months every Friday for two or three hours. And he just interviewed me. You know, he'd ask me a question 
And like most questions, if you don't stop me, I'll just talk forever. And we did that for eight or nine months, every Friday in a is restaurant. He, is this what Brian does for, I mean, he, is he a, a, a ghost writer or? No, no, he's a writer. He teaches writing. Ah. He teaches writing. I think what he thought he was going to do was just give me some ideas on how to do it. But as we talked, you know, we talked about my, my life, you know, my story. And uh, he decided, well, you know, we, we can do this. And we just sat down and, and, did, and he, because he's a published writer, you know, he's been through the process. So he had the agent and- He had we, the agent. That yeah, was, he had, oh, yeah. Okay. We signed up with his agent. And years ago, I wanted to produce a calendar of photography. And I thought it would be an easy thing to do. Well, it's not, you know, and I think that's, the, that's where the agents come in play because they make all of these connections. You know, I was trying to do it myself. I had to find a printer. I had to find out how much it costs to do it. I had to make so many of them that getting rid of them was a full time would be a full time job. So I just thought this is not for me. And um, I had produced some cards and just get keeping them in stores was a big deal. And when when Charlotte was living, she used to take my things when she traveled over the country looking for entities to um, put her work. Are you talking about Charlotte Lewis? Yes. Yes. Okay, for the for our listeners. Okay, so actually the the agent kind of eases the process and takes care of all those details? Tremendously, tremendously. Okay, okay. Otherwise, you, you got a trunk full of books and you sell okay. them out the back of your, it's like the CDs. Okay, Richard, <laughs> I, said, I, want, I want the other co-host to have a chance to ask you okay. a question. So I'm gonna come back on that same note, but I'm gonna let OB okay. come all in right. with this question because I know he's just waiting. What was the editing process and also the ability to uh, get it published by uh, Oregon State University Press. Mm-hmm. How right. did that come about? The editing, the editing process, we, we kind of did together. There was a time when the interview, in the interviews, because he was putting that together, and when he had a, a good body of the work put together, he brought it to me to read. And we did that a couple of times in the process. Okay. And, um, and when it was finished, then you know, I read the whole thing and had two or three other people also read it that were not associated with the, with the actual writing process. And um, we, we took their ideas, their critique, and decided how to uh, use it if, if we needed to use it. So that was, that was a nice process because it was people that knew me and the, one of the great things about the, the uh, publisher or the agent is they have the contact with all the publishers. So they peddle the book to publishers around the country. The, the agent I have is in New York, which I thought was great because my thought was you release it in New York and you instantly got all of these folks it's available to, but that's not the way it works. You know, um, we had probably that I know of eight or nine, seven or eight publishers that looked at the book 
and felt that it was it was too localized to the West Coast. But the great thing about it was, and I don't know whether they always do this or not, but the feedback that we were getting about the book was tremendous. You know, everybody liked it. It just wasn't something that they felt they would be successful releasing on the East Coast. That's how we ended up here. I think we had three publishers here that looked at it. And um, I think uh, we decided Oregon Press. That's how we got with them. So after the meetings and the talk for all those months, uh-huh. how did you figure out which pictures were going to go with the content? Well, you know, there was no, um, I didn't want the pictures to speak to the, the book. Yeah, I wanted the pictures to just be that respite that I take when things got hot and heavy or when I didn't want to deal with anything, that the pictures were just a respite and I wanted them to appear just like that. So I just, you know, I, I picked four categories and then just, you know, pick some pictures and put it together just so I didn't want it to be like I'm working on this as an activist and when, when I get tired, when I need a break, I photograph when I'm working. You know, the whole idea was that the photography had nothing to do with the activities that I was working with. The photography was my way to pull back, to take a break, you know, to, to take care of myself. But still, I'm, I'm looking at some of the photographs and it's interesting. How did you choose? Could you, first of all, could you mention just some of the people? Because I'm seeing somebody whose name escapes me, but I know that he was in the medical field. I feel like his name might have been Josiah, but maybe I'm wrong. Josiah Hill. Yeah. So yeah. just could you mention him and just some of the other people and why you chose the folks that you chose? What I did was when I got the four categories I wanted to have pictures in, I just got some pictures and laid them on the floor. Okay. And just went through there through a process of elimination. And that's the way I did it. You know, pictures that, that were interesting to me and I think would be interesting to other people. Now, the pictures in there don't have names of people. For, you, you have to be familiar with the people. For instance, uh, Gail Strong is, is in, mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. book. Uh, would you talk a little bit about how you came about selecting that and what uh, segment of the four was that represented? This was this is representative. I did one for women, one for men, one for children, and one that dealt with traveling. So that was the four categories. And you know, usually I don't put names on on the pictures because it's not about who they are. It's about looking at us in a more positive light. You know, and, and we don't need an, if we put a name on there, then they can say, oh, Gail Strong, she was special. When in fact, we're all special. When people talk about us or when they photograph us, you know, we, are, we, always, we seem to always be um, in some compromised position, some compromised situation. It's not representing who we are. It's representing who people want us to be or the image that they want other people to see of us. You know, and 
uh, you know, an example of that is um, years ago, I got a um, assignment, Lenita Duke and I got an assignment to do some work for one of the uh, newspapers. And it was about the school during lunch allowed the kids to break dance. So we went there and decided that it's like the only time they want us want to see us doing something is when we're doing something that has not a lot of redeeming value. So instead of going there and photographing the kids break dancing, we found some youngsters that were doing academic stuff and photographed them. So we turned it in that way. And to their credit, they didn't get rid of it. They just sent somebody else out there to get somebody spinning on the floor. You know, so my, my whole thing is, I want people to have another image of who we are. And it doesn't, it, you know, if you know the person, fine. But if you don't know the person, the only thing you have left with is, well, this person looks like if they were Native American, they could be my, 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 the aunt that I love. If they were white, they could be the cousin that I love, not somebody I have to be, feel threatened by. So has all your activism been around Black issues? Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of them have been around Black issues, but they haven't been issues that Black folks have uh, been heavily involved in, like the environment. You know, you don't see a lot of Black folks, especially here, involved in the environment, in the big picture of environment, not just recycling, you know, but uh, cleaning up the air, cleaning up the water. Environmental justice. Environmental justice, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Um, a lot of what you do, especially working with the police, mm -hmm. it's not flashy. It certainly isn't what most people want to do because most people don't want to have any right. contact with the police. And it just seems like after a while, you would get tired and you've been mm -hmm. doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. What do you do to just maintain the will to, to continue to do this? The pictures, the photographs, the other things that I do that, that I like to do that I don't need to be reinforced by those things. You know, um, one of the big things is because because I've been doing it so long and some of the people, some of the cops say, have been around as long as I've been doing it. They know I'm not getting paid. So there is some respect for the fact that, you know, you're doing this and you, you're not asking for anything but change, you know, and, you know, I've, I've, I've always felt that Banging the drum all the time doesn't get you there. And a lot of times, all you have to do is have somebody on the inside to balance that stuff. You know, we, we talk about uh, Martin Luther King all the time and how nonviolent he is. But he didn't have to be, he didn't have to be violent because we had people that would be violent if had to be. Yes. So he became an alternative to folks. And that's where people, when I, you know, people talk about when I was growing up, Nobody wanted to hear about Martin Luther King because I don't know nobody that was turning no cheeks. You know, so the older I get, the more respect I have for him because I, today I don't think I can beat everybody. 
when I was younger, I thought I could beat everybody, you know? So, you know, there's a role for folks. I think one of the bigger problems is that we all are not talking, you know? So if, if you let me know what's going on or how you feel about stuff, then I know what to say inside the, inside the rooms. And one of the advantages I've had is my involvements have been with folks. So I know what people are talking about. I know what people's issues are. You know, as, as an example, um, when uh, they called in the national, oh, there was some issue around uh, black folks going to jail. I was on a committee that dealt with the juvenile justice system. And, and they were trying to keep the folks out of jail. Well, in the community, mothers and grandmothers and aunts were wanting you know, why do they let them out? Because they want, that to, they want them to at least have that experience. So they have something to say, well, I'm not going back there. These are people that love their kids, probably hate the cops, but they want their children to be safe. So keeping them in, keeping them locked up before they had a chance to get a record. See, when you're juvenile, all that goes away when you become age. And and for a lot of folks, they wanted that to be the lesson. And even adult, even in the prison systems, people felt that they their their loved one was safer in prison than they were on the street when folks were getting shot up all the time. And and you know those were women and people that I listened to also. You know, so, you know, you try to balance what the issues are, but none, none of the things that, that I advocated for had to do with me. It always had to do with the community because I was there because the community said, Richard, it's okay for you to be there. Richard, I'm watching you. You know, so, um, you know, I, I never, my issues never were out front. It was the issues of the community for me. And, and that's, one of the, that's one of the ways I was able to keep doing it because I would see the older guys in the community. Folks that I didn't even know and say, oh, you're Richard Brown. I've been watching you, keep it up. Ah. Mr. And you know, I, Mr. Maxey, Mr. Gordley, all of those old guys that have been around here before. All right. And I'd, I'd see them and I wouldn't know who they were. Well, you're Richard Brown, I know who you are. <laughs> you know, I watch you, I see you. Just keep on doing what you're doing. That's right. You know, and, and, and for me, for me, that made it easy to confront folks who had negative things to say about what I was doing. You know, and um, when I was on the board at the House of Amosia, the youngsters used to say, well, Mr. Brown, you're a cop. You know, I said, well, what makes, what makes you think I'm a cop? Well, you're a cop because I see you talking to him. I see you riding around in the cars. I said, well, you know, I'm not a cop. I'm trying to figure this stuff out, you know, and they buy that for about a week or two and then they come back. Mr. I think you're a cop. And I finally said, all right, if you think I'm a cop, just don't do nothing around me. You don't want the cops to know, you know, oh, Mr. Brown, you crazy, you know? So, you know, I had to figure out a way to, to make people understand that you can be doing these things and you don't owe anybody anything. You're not there because somebody is getting something from you. And that's something you have to be careful about. Yeah, you do. You know, you so, but it's the same way in the community. 
You know, you got to be careful about what they see about you. So you can't have nobody saying anything about you without confronting it. You know, so and 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 you know, it didn't take long. You know, I remember going in uh, on a um, search warrant and ran into the guy years later, and I tried to stay out of his way because I didn't know him. And uh, and but I finally went up to him. I said, "Man, do you know? Do you know who I am?" He said, yeah, you came in that house when they um, tore down the door. I said, well, what did you think I was doing there? He said, man, I thought you were just there so that you, they wouldn't do nothing to us. And I grew 10 inches, right? You know, all you got to do is let people know what you're doing. Okay. You know, don't have no agenda. Okay, I know, OB, I, I'm, it's your turn. I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm back up. In terms of uh, distribution of the book, mm -hmm. and, and, and be, be, because there, there is a financial aspect to that, mm -hmm. who handles that uh, for you? Or, or okay, something once the book is yourself? published, everything goes through the agent. They get their cut, yeah. and then they distribute it. Okay. You know, you know, I'll get mine, Brian will get his. You know, I hear people talk about doing their own books and not, you know, if okay. that's what you want to do, fine. Say, for instance, if you go on a tour, a speaking yeah. tour, and yeah. you go to bookstores or what have you, right. are you handling that or that goes through the agent also? You know, I don't know. I see a lot of folks on book tours, and I don't know whether they're paying for it or whether the people who, where they're having the, the interview or the talk, they may even pay for it. You know, I don't, I don't know how that goes. I think the uh, OSU set up the Powell thing, I think. And they just call us and tell us to be there. You know, so I don't, I don't know. You know. I can't imagine that there's no re financial responsibility from the individual because I know that when folks come out here, they're on a tour. They go from Seattle, California, you know, so that makes it worth their while because they sell books at the shows. So I, you know, I don't know. We have not had to deal with that. So I don't know exactly how it works. But like, if, you know, if I was going somewhere, if I was going to Texas, say, and they told me that they, they were distributing books down there, I'd try to find whoever was there. And while I'm there, we can do a, um, have a book sale. You know, but I don't know how it's, I'm sure for those folks who get those big advances, that's probably not a problem. Michelle Obama doesn't have any problem traveling to sell her book, you know, because she got a, a pretty good advance, you know, so. Um, right. And, and the, the agent also was able to hook up the, um, the audio book. You know, so they, you know, they do a lot of work, you know, you know, Sometimes I think, well, I could have done that. Well, you didn't, you know, so. So one question is, there's an audio book and who's the reader? Anybody wants to buy? Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Is there <laughs> reader, an audio book? The, the reader is Emmett Whit Whitfield. Right. right. And, 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 you know, again, again, a lot of times they decide who is going to be the reader. And they sent, sent me three tapes of people that they had gotten to read the book. 
I said, whoa, you know, I know some folks that can do this and I would like to have them considered also. They sent me back a, a email that, you know, a lot goes into doing this. You know, these guys have been doing it for a long time. I said, well, listen, all of those folks that do it had a first time. And, and they said, all right, we'll let Emmett do it. So he tried out and he got it. You know, so, we, you know, we've been real good in being able to have some say in who participates in it. Emmett is local? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a great poet. Exactly. Um, okay. In terms of availability, my first question is, is your book in the library yet? Well, I don't, I don't know. I think that OHS would take care of those things. Okay. Like there's, um, uh, Avell had, Avell Gordley had suggested to the publisher that they be required reading in the schools. You know, so I don't know. I don't know what that process is. Right. That you know, so, um, you know, I, I think if people ask for it, the ch chances of it happening are, are pretty good. Um, you know, I want to see it into the um, police academy. Okay. Yeah, All right. Here's what I would ask for my last question. And I think we're pretty close to the end. Mm -hmm. um, do you have your book handy? I have one. Yes. Okay. You read something for us the last time. Could you close out by reading just, I think, I don't know how much time we have, maybe about a minute or two, because uh, I think that would just be a great way for people to be reminded of why they want this book, why we wanted to do two interviews with you. Read some from the foreword. Okay, all right. It's hard to say exactly when this book began, but if I had to choose one moment, I think I'd point to the day four or five years ago when a teenager who had just seen me give a speech to families of new police, a speech about cops work and their well-being and their responsibility to take care of themselves so they can do right by us as civilians, came up and asked me, how do you, I do what you do? I don't remember what I said. All I know is I didn't answer his question. I couldn't, and that bothered me. It bothered me because I love that that boy asked me what he'd asked. I wanted nothing more than to help him learn to walk the path I've walked. And I just didn't know how to. My first thought when I sat down to think about this was I'd do a checklist, a how-to. I figured thanks to 20 years in the military training that it ought to create some sort of structured learning. But when I tried to do that, I couldn't. It couldn't fit into check boxes. So before long, I scrapped the how-to and started thinking bigger. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. This is Patricia Welch, librarian emeritus saying, first of all, I, I, this is a great book and I hope everybody who's listening reads it. And I hope that everybody out there is going to have a great June and just relax on the beach with the book during this month. <laughs> we'll see you next month. Bye-bye. Keep up the good works on Black Book Talk. It may be hard, but we'll still
find a way to get through it. It's time to come together, y'all. Together, y'all. The May edition and the June edition of Black Book Talk is dedicated to Shahid Abdullah Ahmed, who shows on KBOO were very, very responsive to certain aspects of the Black community. His show, The Islamic Point of View, as well as The Essence of Soul and the Jazz Continuum are to always be remembered. <laughs>